Good morning. I'm Danny Martin. I'm the pastor in residence here at Five Oaks Church. Really glad to see all of you here today. And good to be seen by all of you watching online. I think my mom is watching this morning. Good morning, Mom. Good to see you. One of the most famous opening lines in movie history is a line that is never actually spoken in the film that uses it. The film begins in silence with a black screen, except for the famous opening line. This line tells the audience exactly what sort of movie they're about to watch in 10 simple words. Surely the nerds among you have already guessed a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. The very first line from Star Wars released in 1977. It's a line that says to the audience without directly saying it, what you're about to watch is so long ago that no one could ever remember it. It's so far away, no one will ever find it. So don't wait and don't look. Don't try to connect this story to a real time and place. Suspend your disbelief, grab a popcorn, grab a Coke, get ready for the ride. A long time ago in a galaxy far, far away is a lot like another famous opening line, once upon a time. If a story begins with once upon a time, we know right away that we are about to hear a fairy tale. Thank you, class. <laughs> this opening line tells us we shouldn't think too hard about the details of the story because it's made up. The point of a fairy tale is not to try to track down the real people and places they describe, because fairy tales aren't describing real people and places. And if they are, I have questions. What questions, thank you for asking. The laughter is you asking, and here are the questions. Why were the three bears eating porridge when they certainly had access to organic fresh-caught salmon? I might need a new, uh, I'm having a problem with my ear here, Harold, just so you know. Was the historical Dumpty, Humpty Dumpty an egg man or a man egg? And why did the king care to put him back together again? All those resources for that. Did Red Riding Hood need glasses or did grandma just always look like a wolf dressed in drag? We are, of course, not supposed to ask these sorts of questions, particularly the last one about fairy tales. The point of a fairy tale is to use a made-up story to teach a true lesson. And the opening line, once upon a time, is a context clue that tells us how we're supposed to understand what comes after. Opening lines tell us a lot about the types of stories we're about to watch or read. They establish the expectations we have toward the story. There is also an opening line in the Gospel of Matthew. I'm looking at chapter 1, starting in verse 18, and I invite you to do the same. If you don't have a Bible app, BibleGateway.com will work. And if you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath the seat in front of you. You're looking for page 966, 966. While you're opening to Matthew 1.18, I'll remind you that one of our core values here at Five Oaks 
is that though the Bible is at times mysterious to us, it does not need to be a mystery. If you will read the Bible and ask God to open your eyes to its message and to its meaning for your life, he will do it because he deeply desires to have a relationship with every single one of us, but we must position ourselves to hear from him. And Bible reading is one foundational way of doing that. Matthew 1, 18, it's an opening line. It tells us the kind of story we're about to read. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. Let's pray. Father, you are good, and we praise you. We thank you for the grace of another day. Open our ears to hear what you are speaking to each of our hearts, and may we be more than hearers. May we be listeners and doers. We lift up our world to you. We pray for those affected by the acts of violence in Virginia and Colorado. We ask for your peace that surpasses all understanding. May it infiltrate the lives of the survivors, family, friends, communities. We ask that these tragedies would lead people to seek you and come to know you. And we pray for the churches and ministries in these areas. May they follow you closely as they minister to the hurting. Be with each of us during this Advent season as we celebrate your coming, Lord Jesus. Come again soon. Amen. Imagine if Jesus' story began a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, there was a man named Jesus. Or what if it started, once upon a time there was a very special baby. We would take that to mean don't bother asking where Jesus was born or when he lived because that doesn't really matter in this story. We might be tempted to think that, like in a fantasy movie or a fairy tale, the story of Jesus is ultimately made up, though there are some nice morals to the story. We would think it's a literally untrue story that teaches true lessons. But the story of Jesus does not begin with once upon a time. It begins, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. The story of Jesus does not tell us that the things it records are so long ago we shouldn't bother wondering when, or so far away we shouldn't bother looking where. In fact, it does just the opposite when it echoes another famous opening line we've seen in many books and movies based on a true story. The life and ministry of Jesus is not a fairy tale. It is not an awesome film franchise that has been ruined by Disney. <laughs> the life and ministry of Jesus is not a made-up story all the grown-ups told you until you got old enough to know better. Jesus Christ is a real historical figure. You can believe there was a historical Jesus Christ as confidently as you can believe there was a Julius Caesar Cleopatra, or George Washington. Unfortunately, we tend to hear just the opposite, especially around Christmas and Easter. Some folks really like to get into the holiday spirit by making tweets and memes and little video clips. Thank you, Harold. And they like to say in all of these things that Jesus didn't really exist. And if you're going to believe Jesus exists, why not go all the way and just believe in leprechauns and unicorns. 
They say that the stories of Jesus' life, they're mythical. They're not different from stuff about Hercules or King Arthur. And by the way, didn't you know that Jesus was invented in the 4th century by the Roman Emperor Constantine? Didn't you Christians know that? Don't you know your history? We're told to enjoy the, the pretty Christmas lights and to indulge mom by going to church with her at Christmas because we know if mama's not happy, nobody's happy. So go ahead, make mama happy at Christmas, but don't take this Jesus thing so seriously. It's all made up. This is Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman has had a long career as a New Testament scholar, distinguished professor at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill, author of over 30 books, and skeptic. He is a skeptic of Christianity, and he is also not an ivory tower academic who only writes for other scholars. He's a public intellectual. He's appeared on everything from the Great Courses curriculum to The Daily Show. And six of his published books are New York Times bestsellers. So if there's any living New Testament scholar who could get away with writing a best-selling book arguing that Jesus is a made-up fairy tale, prime suspect. People would look at his resume and they'd say, he knows what he's talking about, plus he's confirming my bias, so let's run with this. So you may be surprised to learn that in 2012, Bart Ehrman published his book, Did Jesus Exist? The Historical Argument for Jesus of Nazareth. And in the opening of this book, he wrote, I am not a Christian, and I have no interest in promoting a Christian cause or a Christian agenda. I am an agnostic with atheist leanings. But as a historian, I think evidence matters, and the past matters. And for anyone to whom both the evidence and the past matter, a dispassionate consideration of the case makes it quite plain. Jesus did exist. He adds later in the book, the idea that Jesus did not exist is a modern notion. It has no ancient precedence. It was made up in the 18th century. One might as well call it a modern myth, the myth of the mythical Jesus. Even this guy says Jesus existed. Why are you letting random Facebook memes and TikTok dum-dums tell you he doesn't? We have to stop listening to people who are good at getting our attention but have, haven't done anything to deserve it. The truth is that the people who are best positioned to argue that Jesus is not a real figure of history don't because they can't. Jesus is not like Luke Skywalker or Humpty Dumpty or Hercules or we're in Minnesota, Paul Bunyan. He's not a made-up character placed in a real historical setting like Forrest Gump or the Downton Abbey people. Jesus Christ was really born, really lived, really died. You can believe he existed and that he started a movement that changed the world. We call it church. You should believe this. I'd even venture to say you'd be foolish not to. But Jesus does a lot more than simply exist in the annals of history Matthew 1 goes on. This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. 
We have now reached the point where Bart Ehrman no longer agrees with us. It didn't take very long. Here's a thing which may surprise some of you. Uh, ancient people weren't New York Times bestsellers. I don't know if you realize that. They also weren't dum-dums. We read on. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law, that is the law of Moses, the Torah, and yet did not want to expose Mary to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Why did Joseph want to divorce her? Well, because in the overwhelming majority of cases, the Holy Spirit does not go around making babies pop out of nowhere, which Joseph knew because he wasn't a dum-dum. And second, he knew that babies come from a woman and a man. And third, he knew that he was not the man. He wasn't going to start his married life with someone he assumed was cheating on him. At the same time, he wanted to shield Mary from everything she would have suffered as an adulteress living in that place and time. Public disgrace, impossible social hurdles, and a life of poverty. So he wanted to divorce her quietly. And then this happens in Matthew 1.20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son, meaning descendant of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Jesus isn't just a real historical figure who the majority of credible scholars believe existed, there is more. He is conceived from God the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity. Believing this takes more faith than believing he was just a real person. Plenty of experts who are secular believe Jesus was a real person. And I can't tell you the mechanism by which God the Holy Spirit impregnated the Virgin Mary with God the Son, the second person of the Holy Trinity, yielding the hypostatic union. And no amount of graduate school will answer that question either, I'm sorry to say. Being comfortable with some degree of ignorance in matters like this is hard for some of us because we assume that we are smart and if you would just explain it right, I'd get it. But actually, that's not true. What I mean is, you could explain calculus all day to your dog. Let's call him Coda. <laughs> all day, every day to Coda. But private tutoring will never help Coda understand calculus because Coda's doggy brain is not capable of understanding calculus. It is beyond Coda's categories. His categories are, you know, breakfast, snacks, treats, belly rubs. These are his categories. But just because Coda can't understand calculus doesn't mean there is no calculus. And we don't like the idea that when it comes to God, there are some ways in which we have doggy Coda brains. But we do. One of my college professors put it this way, there are things about God I cannot answer, but there are things about God I cannot question. The things we can't answer about God can be fun to talk about, but it's the things that we can't question about him that we can build our lives on. Next year, there will be a trip to Israel that some of you will go on, and those of you 
brave souls who are willing to subject yourselves to a week trapped with Pastor Henry in a foreign country will go on that trip. (laughs) And you'll tour Israel and you'll sit where Jesus sat and you'll walk where Jesus walked and you'll eat some falafel. And I hope that you will go to the Sea of Galilee and stand there and look out over the water and know that it is a real place and that when the Bible means to tell us something is actually true, we can trust it. But even standing there, looking at that water, it will take faith to believe that 2,000 years ago, Jesus ordered it to be still and it obeyed. We can corroborate much of what the Bible says with real people, times, places, events, but Israel trips and seminary will never exempt us from the need to believe God, Hebrews 11 tells us, and without faith, it is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. I know a lot of you have been following Jesus for a long time, And some of what I'm saying here might be old hat. But it is not old hat to everybody. Last fall, we had a few weeks of Bible Q&A with the middle school students here at Five Oaks. They were able to ask whatever questions they wanted, which is potentially dangerous, but we made it. And adults, I have to tell you, the middle schoolers' questions, better than yours. (laughs) The middle schoolers want to know, How can they believe God exists? Where did the Bible come from? Life-altering questions. Adults want to know if they should tithe, gross or net. (laughs) None of this is old hat to our students. It's not old hat to our guests in person or online, or maybe they're just visiting with us because they're in town, or maybe it's Christmas time and it's a good thing to go back to church and celebrate. Maybe at some point years ago, they concluded that Jesus' story is a pleasant, it's a pleasant fairy tale. But they need to know that it's much, much more than that. So for those of you to whom this is old hat, thank you for putting up with me. If you don't want to put up with me, direct all angry emails to our complaint department. That's jhagey at fiveoakschurch.org. There's two A's, not two E's on that. The gospel writers tell us Jesus was born from a human mother, yet conceived by God's Holy Spirit. It takes some faith to believe this, but it's not a blind faith. It's a reasonable faith. We read on in Matthew 121. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus because he will save his people. 15% on car insurance by switching to Geico... That is not what it says. This is why they don't let me up here very often. (laughs) Okay, okay, okay. Let's try it again. Give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from distant relatives they don't want to see at the holidays. This is not right. You know what the problem is? I'm translating directly from the Greek. I'm a little rusty. Okay, okay. Here we go. Thank you for laughing. Call him Jesus because he will save his people from all the negative consequences of their actions. 
He will save his people from all the negative consequences of other people's actions. From cancer. From a financial crisis they didn't cause. From a hard upbringing they didn't deserve. From losing their home in a hurricane or to a foreign military aggressor. From a tragic random act of violence. So much of the confusion about Jesus' identity orbits the question of what he came to save us from. Throughout his ministry, people assumed Jesus was there to save them from the Roman Empire, the foreign occupying power in Israel. Jesus' opponents thought he was a pretender grasping for fame and a following, and they feared that he would start a revolution, agitate Rome, and bring down catastrophe on Israel. Jesus' followers thought that he was God's chosen Messiah, and they assumed that this meant he was the tip of the spear against Rome. He would overthrow the Romans, reinstate Israel as an independent kingdom, and that's what he came to save his people from. Things haven't changed all that much today. Jesus never promised to rescue us from every inconvenience, difficulty, or hardship this world brings. But it hasn't stopped many, many people from saying that following Jesus is about curing the world of social evils. It hasn't stopped others from saying that following Jesus will lead to us enjoying wealth, health, and happiness, and we just have to believe hard enough. And we can prove that we believe by sending a check or money order to the right person. All of these ideas are false. The angel from God told Joseph this, you will give him the name Jesus. In Hebrew, it's Yeshua. It means rescuer, deliverer, savior. Mary will give birth to a son. You are to give him the name Jesus. He will save his people from their sins. Jesus came to save us from the thing which has broken our relationship with God, our sins. Sin is not just a word religious people use to categorize stuff they don't like. It's much worse than that. It is any thought, action, or inaction that violates God's holiness. It separates us from God. Our regular attenders will know that we just spent quite a while looking at the first page of the Bible. And one of the things we learned from reading the early chapters of the book of Genesis is that God created human beings to be in relationship with himself and with one another. And he put them in a garden. And they were all together there with no separation. And when the first human beings sinned by disobeying God, they became separated from him. And he made this separation tangible by banishing them from the garden that should have been their home. And then he put keruvim, cherubim, which are not these pudgy little babies like in Renaissance art. They're big, terrifying angels with swords. They guarded the way to the garden so Adam and Eve could never go back. Everybody who's come after them is now dealing with the consequences of their disobedience. We are, to varying degrees, all victims and all perpetrators. Some theologians would say we are sinners by nature and by choice. We're outside of the garden, and that means we suffer things we were not meant to suffer. And we perpetrate things we were not meant to perpetrate.
So now we can't be near God because he is, as the Bible tells us, a purifying, consuming fire and he dwells in unapproachable light. We can't approach him or we, we would be consumed. Yet at the same time, he created us to be in relationships with himself. This is a problem. And it's the problem Jesus came to save us from. The reason Jesus is able to rescue us from this problem is because of what we're reading right here. Joseph is not Jesus' father. God is Jesus' father. He was not born a sinner by nature, and he never became one by choice. Jesus was not a perpetrator because he is truly human and truly God. The Bible says that Jesus was without sin, and this is because he is truly God. Because Jesus is truly God, he is not separated from God. And because he is truly human, he is able to bridge the separation for us. But the people in Jesus' day were concerned with getting their human kingdom back. They thought that's what the Messiah's purpose was, and once they get their, got their human kingdom back, everything would be all right. But that wasn't the real problem they and we are dealing with. We were not made for human kingdoms. We were made for a garden. And since we can't go back to the garden, Jesus brought the garden to us. Jesus is truly God and truly human. He is the son of David as well as the son of God. He says we will have trouble in this world and that he will save us from our sins. Not either or, both and. He didn't promise to make the world perfect. That will come later. He didn't come to save us from everything bad that may conceivably happen. He came to fill every moment of our lives with his presence, and he came to remake us into the people he means for us to be. And this is better than any human kingdom we can build for ourselves. The text goes on in Matthew 1.22. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Immanuel, Emmanuel. It means God with us. When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. But he did not consummate their marriage until she gave birth to a son, and he gave him the name Jesus. Emmanuel is not what Jesus' name should have been. It's a title. It's a statement about the kind of person Jesus is. That statement about Jesus' identity is God with us. In John chapter 1, it says that the word, which means Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us. Dwell is an important word. It's one of those places where the Greek is actually really helpful. It literally says that Jesus pitched a tent among us, which is a strange way to say someone is with you if you're not camping, unless there is something else going on. You may have heard that in the Old Testament, the people of Israel lived in the wilderness for a minute. And at this time, God instructed them to build something called 
the tent of meeting or tabernacle. The tent of meeting was always pitched in the middle of the Israelites' camp. It's where the priests offered sacrifices and God dwelt in the center of the tent of meeting. When the Jews camped in the wilderness, the tent of meeting was always at the center of their camp because it signified that God was with them. John is not using a strange word for no reason. He means to say that God was with his people in the tent of meeting and God was with us when Jesus pitched his tent in this world because he was a human tent of meeting. Jesus' name means Savior. His title means God with us. The garden was a place where God and humans dwelt together with no separation. And since we can't go back to the garden, Jesus brought the garden to us. This is why we read in John chapter 2, starting in 19, Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. The religious leaders replied, it's taken 46 years to build this temple and you're going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Originally, it was the garden where God dwelt with people. Later, it was the tent of meeting. Later still, the temple in Jerusalem. Now Jesus said he is the true temple because a temple is where people go to meet with God. So if you want to know that God is with us, look at Jesus. Because as Colossians tells us, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn, meaning preeminent, over all creation. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. In Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. You have a savior who has been tempted in every way you have. He knows what you've been through and he knows what you're going through because he is also truly human. Hebrews 4 tells us, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weakness, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. When Adam and Eve left the garden, God posted guards so they would keep back. And when God gave the law to Moses, he said the people had to keep back. At the tent of meeting, only the high priest could go into the presence of God. Everyone else had to keep back. In the temple, a curtain hung down so the people would know they had to keep back. What does it mean that through Jesus, God is with us? It means we no longer need to keep back. Hebrews 4 tells us, let us then approach God's throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. If you wonder whether or not God wants to be with you, look at Jesus. He sits on a throne of grace. He does not say, keep back. He says, come in, just as you are. He says you can be forgiven of the things you won't forgive yourself of. He says you can find a hopeful life of meaning and purpose. You can have the guarantee of eternity with God. He says don't wait to fix yourself first or you'll never come. Come boldly. Come today in your time of need. 
It's not a fairy tale. It's not too good to be true. Jesus is God with us, and he deeply desires to be God with you. The Apostle Paul was not one of Jesus' original followers. He started off thinking that Jesus' story was a big lie until he saw Jesus alive, and it changed his life. And in the book of Acts, chapter 26, Paul finds himself on trial because he wouldn't stop telling people about Jesus. The people there judging him were Portius Festus, a Roman leader, and King Herod Agrippa. As Paul goes on explaining how he went from being an opponent of Jesus to a proponent, Portius Festus interrupts and says, you're out of your mind with this Jesus stuff. And we read this in Acts 26, 25. I am not insane, most excellent Festus, Paul replied. What I am saying is true and reasonable. The king, Herod Agrippa, is familiar with these things, and I can speak freely to him. Herod Agrippa was in Israel. He saw all of these things with Jesus. Paul says, I'm convinced that none of this has escaped Agrippa's notice because it was not done in a corner. Jesus didn't have a compound out in the desert. He had a public ministry in many different locations. He was with people all the time, common people, religious leaders, political leaders. They all stood face to face with him. He was publicly executed at the very center of Judaism during its biggest holiday. Hundreds of people saw him die. The location of his tomb was public knowledge. Hundreds more claimed to witness him brought back to life from death. The eyewitnesses were so committed to this testimony, they let themselves be hated, driven from their homes, and in some cases, tortured to death, rather than deny that Jesus is God with us. We always have more people with us this time of year. We know our business. We know the numbers are up around Christmas. People like to get into the holiday spirit. They're visiting from out of town. So if you're watching or listening today, and maybe you've adopted this idea that Jesus is all right, but we, maybe we shouldn't take him so seriously, I want to encourage you today, even if it's just one notch on the dial, take Jesus more seriously. And for those of us who are already taking Jesus seriously, but may be troubled when we don't feel able to address challenges to our beliefs, I want to encourage you today, taking Jesus seriously, he's not insane. It is reasonable. It is based on the evidence of history and on the evidence of our experience. He has changed our lives, has he not? This is, as Jesus said, to build one's life upon a firm foundation. Jesus invites all of us into a different life altogether. Not a good life devoid of conflict, but a good life despite the conflict. An enduring, nevertheless kind of life in which there is no separation between you and God. He is inviting you into something better than the human kingdom you can build on your own. It is a life of purpose, service, community, meaning, goodness. And Jesus can do this for us because he is God with us. 
and his story is true. God truly entered history in the person of Jesus, and every week at Five Oaks, we remember this through celebration of the Lord's Supper. We remember his body broken for our sin and his blood shed that we may know God by grace through faith. It is God's free gift to anyone who will believe it is already bought and paid for. And we're remembering it today. We read in Matthew chapter 26, the last supper of Jesus with his disciples, this. While they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take and eat, this is my body. Thank you, Jesus, let's eat it together. Then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Thank you, Jesus, let's drink it together. Let's pray. Father, you are good and we love you. We thank you for the sacrifice of Jesus. We thank you that it is the promise of new life for any who will believe. We thank you that you did all the work. We thank you that you came into this world, that you are God with us, that this story is true, that we can build our lives upon it. I pray for everyone who doesn't know you and who needs to build their life on your story. Get a hold of their hearts today. Show them what it means to know you. In Jesus' name, amen.